Episode 142 of The Bowery Boys, New York University. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With another episode of The Bowery Boys New York City History. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you very much. Good to be back after those little travels. Greg, I would say that this is our back-to-school special. Or rather, this is our second part of our back-to-school special. Oh, really? now you Now, let me explain that. This is a very exciting time for us on The Bowery Boys because just earlier this week, I released our very first audio walking tour our audio walking tour for sale. I call it the Bowery Boys Audio History Tour, and it is a one-hour walking tour of Washington Square Park, which is that marvelous park in Greenwich Village, uh, over 200 years worth of history. So when you download the walking tour, is there literally a place that you start and you sort of guide us through the park and through the park's history? Right. There's a starting point on the north side of the park, and basically we'll stroll the entire perimeter and go in and outside of the park. And the cast of this walking tour includes Jane Jacobs, and Robert Moses, of course, George Washington, Giuseppe Garibaldi, Dion Arbus, Bob Dylan. The whole gang is there. Wow. I hope it gets a good reception. And if we sell enough, then I'll record another one for a little bit later this year. This one is currently on sale worldwide and basically anywhere that you can buy digital music. So if you've liked our show in the past and wouldn't mind giving something a little back, but getting some enjoyment out of it, you can purchase our show at any of those places and enjoy a tour of one of New York's oldest parks. But this tour serves as a little bit of a part one of Mm -hmm. today's podcast that we are doing on the history of New York University. New York University, or NYU as we call it, or the University of the City of New York, as As they once called it, was originally called, is obviously one of the city's most celebrated universities. It obviously defines the culture of the Washington Square Park area, but actually NYU has spread out all over the city. It's been downtown, it's been in the village, and it's been up in the Bronx, not to mention in other parts of the world. It's a school that takes its energy from the streets of New York and many of the classic structures that it currently inhabits. Of course, some of the newer structures that it currently inhabits have caused some problems in the city in recent years. We won't go through every academic achievement that has ever occurred at NYU because that would take us forever. They're so numerous and that would be an entirely tedious podcast to listen to. But We would like to explore the relationship that the city has had with this university since it was founded in 1831, how the university works with the city and sometimes against it, highlighting some of the financial and physical growing pains that the university has had as the school has worked to train and educate thousands of students over the years. So take a seat and open your books to Podcast 142 as we explore the history of New York University. Best of your ability, can mm. you sort of summarize what NYU is, where they are 
generally located right. and some of the things that they're known for? Well, <laughs> all in less than 40 seconds. Can you? Yes. As a means of situation, I would say that New York University is one of America's largest private nonprofit institutions of higher learning. In fact, it was ranked at the top of a list of the largest private university campuses in the country by enrollment. Top of the list, with 43,404 students enrolled in 2010, Mm -hmm. which was the most recent stat that I could find. Since the university was founded more than 180 years ago, back in 1831, today its main campus is back downtown around the village, around Washington Square Park. In fact, Washington Square Park often feels like it's part of the university's campus. It's often treated that way, too. Well, the thing to remember, and that will keep popping up here, is that most colleges do have a proper campus. Right. Have a sort of enclosed area where the students are basically protected or shielded from the rest of the world so that they can study in a certain private environment. But that is not the way that NYU is. Well, I suppose NYU has private buildings with classrooms uh, and students student centers and such, which are protected for the students. But once they step right outside that building, they're on the street next to people like you and me. (laughs) And you see students everywhere in Washington Square Park. They're studying, they're hanging out, having lunch. You see classes in Washington Square Park. You see student filmmakers making movies in Washington Square Park. And in the streets around the park, you'll see lots of cafes and cheap and yummy restaurants and pubs and delis that are all catering to this large student population Mm -hmm. that the university draws. But NYU is not just in Washington Square Park. There are five other centers in New York City, and there are more than a dozen throughout the world, including in Abu Dhabi and in Shanghai. Wow. The university has 18 schools and colleges, and the university counts about 6,750 instructors in its academic staff, which is enormous. I think I read that it's one of the largest employers in New York City, mm-hmm. because the thousands of people that uh, are at work teaching and operating all these facilities. Now, if we turn back the clock to 200 years ago, before mm. uh, the university existed, you had very, f- very few options in higher education in New York at that time. In fact, the only game in town 200 Mm -hmm. years ago was King's College, the precursor to Columbia University. Uh, We have episode number 90 uh, recounting the history of Columbia, King's College. Which, of course, after the revolution became Columbia College. Oh, correct. It was King's College when it was first first founded under the king. In 1754, (laughs) yes. Their campus, by the time of our, the start of our podcast here, they're still located at Park Place. So they are way downtown. Mm -hmm. And they have a handful of graduates a year. So it's it's a very select university. It's also for elites. All of these major universities, including the ones outside of New York, Yale and Harvard, they all had a religious affiliation. In fact, uh, the classes were closely tied in with the various religious philosophies uh, that it was associated with. So as a tie back to the original crown, back when King's College was formed by the Anglican Church, they still had a connection to the Episcopalians. So the kind of instruction that they'd be receiving at these old schools would be quite religious, right? Education was just more married, more associated with religious ideas back then. It was just the way things were more commonly done. 
This is an era gone by where education was meant for men with property, uh, the sons of men with property. The problem is, though, by 1830, that New York is a hugely expanding city, and there's a new class of wealthy people who are living and thriving in New York, and that would be the new merchant class and people of very different religions. And so, in a way, it didn't make sense anymore to think about education as specifically defined by a person's religion. And social status. Right. This is the era also of Jacksonian democracy. In fact, uh, Andrew Jackson would be the president during this period of time. This idea of pure democracy, an era of, of equal rights and things that were not based upon a person's lineage or education... For instance, around this period of time, New Yorkers got to elect mayors directly for the very first time. Like They actually got to go into a voting booth. Before that, they were either appointed or they were voted on by a common council. And when we're talking about an expansion of rights, we're still talking, obviously, about expanding the rights for white men. Exactly. White men, not, not women and not people of other races at this time. So in 1829, a group of very concerned New York citizens, many of whom believed in this new form of democracy, got together and discussed the idea of forming a university that would be sort of based around those ideals. They met at the home of a man named James Matthew, who was a reverend and the South Dutch Reformed Church. Mm -hmm. And so they began discussing these ideas. The following year, they had a sort of broader planning meeting that included many of New York's most prominent institutions, including the New York Historical Society, was brought in at that time. They all essentially brainstormed and said, well, how can we create a university that has a more non-denominational feel that would attract the sons of the merchant class and so that we could broaden the city's scope of education. Of course, with these types of things, as with today, they needed a celebrity. They needed someone, <laughs> they needed a nice, a nice big name that everyone knew that they could hang this on a little bit. So and also, so they brought in Latoya Jackson. So Latoya Jackson was brought in through a time machine. No, no, no. It was a person of note, a person to spearhead this. His name was Albert Gallatin. Mm-hmm. Um, far more prestigious than Latoya Jackson. <laughs> Gallatin was the former Secretary of Treasury under Thomas Jefferson um, and had just a couple years earlier completed his role as the ambassador to England. After that, he settled back in New York and became the city's one of the most revered citizens. He was elected to this very first council to form what would be called, at that time, the University of the City of New York, which does not roll off the tongue. So we will probably continue calling it NYU in the show. Well, I'm going to call it the University (laughs) of the City of New York until the name change. Okay, U-O-T-C-O-N-Y. And there's a hyphen, there's a dash in there. <laughs> so th- this new school, this new concept, received its former state charter in April of 1831. Well, this all sounds very exciting. So obviously the city and the state just came to uh, the university's assistance here, right? And gave them money to construct their first school. N- not really. No. No, no, no money at this time from the governments yet. It was actually initially funded by private stock offerings. So by selling shares in the stock, it gave them more independence to create their own curriculum? And Yes, exactly. Well, what they wanted to do, I mean, this was their initial intention, was to focus on what they called useful knowledge, a pragmatic education, as opposed to what was the standard of the day, a classical curriculum. This was the plan. It would exist as a non-denominational institution with no specific religious tie. 
So the very first class, the very first students of this new university of the city of New York was in a building close to City Hall called Clinton Hall at Beekman and Nassau. And the first class was in, on October of 1832. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just add that that building that they were in was one of New York's very first libraries. It was also the Mercantile Library. And the initial collection would, of course, be carried on to other libraries. And I'm sure some of, some of those books have made their way to the New York Public Library today. Gallatin was the president, but the first chancellor was James Matthews. Now, he was the member that he was right. where we, we first met him. He was a reverend. They initially planned to have a non denominational facility here, but he was a reverend of this Dutch Reformed Church. Right. So they didn't put much distance between their chancellor and the church. No, so it already was sort of breaking down. That classical education kind of seeped in very quickly afterwards. Gallatin immediately did not like where this was heading. He did not like this arrangement. It immediately flew in the face of his initial intentions here. He said, quote, As to the chancellor, I cannot think of the office with temper. He has made a perfect monarch, and I do not like monarchy. Hmm. Unquote. So he bolted within a year. Gallatin was out of this project uh, very, very quickly. So Gallatin, which is a name that is so closely tied today to NYU, as it's the name of one of its colleges, was only involved with NYU for one year? Yeah, not for very long. I mean, you know, the philosophies that he brought along that he represented, NYU holds those dear. But in fact, in truth, he actually was not involved with the development for that long, just for the very beginning here. Um, Gallatin, by the way, eventually retired. He died in Astoria in 1849, and he's buried in Trinity Churchyard. But the university would face more complex issues as they decided to expand uptown from this original building near City Hall. Right. So right from the start, they'd been looking for this other campus that would work for them, and they looked just north to the little the little village of Greenwich, Greenwich Village, which at that point had been brought into the city through the commissioner's plan, mm-hmm. but was still a sort of little enclave of houses, a little village, um, a little hamlet, if you will. The land was just beginning to to be developed around the side of the military parade ground Mm -hmm. that had once been a cemetery, but now, because the city was pushing up that direction, that area was beginning to look very attractive to people of wealth. Right. These rich families were building mansions and nice homes, uh, very handsome homes, along the northern edge of what is today's Washington Square Park. So it looked like a good investment to the University of the City of New York. So they purchased a block of land in 1832 in July, just months before the classes started downtown. Mm -hmm. They purchased this block of land that's on the northeast corner of the park for $40,000. This, of course, would turn out to be a wonderful investment for the university because the land values, of course, increased dramatically around them. And it's why they have a foothold in that neighborhood today. It's from this particular purchase. Right. It all started there in the northeast corner facing the park. So the university hired the architecture firm of Town, Davis, and Dakin to design a building that would be, quote, commodious but plain. Well, the chancellor, James Matthews, he had other ideas, and he chose something that was quite large, but anything but plain. He chose a design that was this ornate, neo-Gothic, castle-like structure uh, that would be referred to from here on out as the university building, and then later the old university building. It had a Gothic chapel, four floors of classrooms and lecture spaces, various little lookout points, towers, turrets, 
arched windows and dramatic flourishes. It, the only thing it's missing, really, it was missing was a drawbridge <laughs> and a moat around it. I mean, it was amazing. It's it re- gorgeous. Well, to me, it reminds me of Hogwarts. Like, oh, right. ha- like Harry Potter, I-, I expect in these old pictures to see like floating candles and you know little <laughs> wizards like running around the corner. It's really an imposing. Like they they meant to make a statement. Well, it was seen as a wonderful example of neo gothic architecture or gothic revival architecture, which was a, which was a period. Oh, it was being revived. It was alive and well here at the northeast corner <laughs> of the park. The cornerstone was laid in 1833, and two years later, the university would move into the building in 1835, even though the building really wasn't finished for another two years in 1837. So 1837, let's say it's completed, and this would be the home base of the university through 1895. Mm -hmm. But all was not well during the construction of the university building, unfortunately, because the university was facing some financial difficulties. And this sounds like an expensive building. It would have been cheaper to go with the commodious but plain building. Oh, sure, but that's not what they wanted. Finances were so bad, Greg, we're not joking. The university council disclosed that at one point the university had a balance of $66.46. So <laughs> the entire school, was it like pennies in a jar or something? <laughs> um, so that was all they had left because they had thrown all of their resources into this building? Well... And it wasn't completed yet. Hmm. They were still looking for, for ways to save. So one way to save during the construction was to order stones that had already been dressed, quote-unquote, dressed for construction, which meant that they were the marble had been chiseled and it had been sort of smoothed out on sides so you could build with it and it was ready to go. Well, it turns out that the cheapest place around here to get your marble dressed if you were looking for it, for that. <laughs> it was some fancy marble. was just out of town at Sing Sing Penitentiary, which had opened in 1825. So they've chosen prison labor over local labor here. Right. This, unfortunately, was nothing new. In fact, this was a rallying cry for the new unions that were, that were starting all over town in the 1830s, rallying against the state prison monopoly, is what they called it. Prisoners were being used to do all kinds of manual labor. They didn't just dress the stone at Sing Sing. They built Sing Sing. The prisoners built themselves wow. their, their own penitentiary. But this is a very symbolically odd thing to be using if you're building a structure of higher education. Right, so it's ironic. And I don't know if the irony was lost on the Marble Cutters Union, but they were also upset about it. (laughs) In October of 1833, 150 men from the Marble Cutters Union marched down Broadway and went straight tools in hand with some banners, but they're chiseling tools too, which would make me stand back. Uh Uh, they headed straight for the marble-cutting studios for the workshop of a certain Elisha Bloomer at 160 Broadway near 4th Street. They broke down windows and doors and did $2,000 worth of damage, which put the city in a panic, so much so that they called in the 27th Regiment to break up this armed protest and keep the peace. The word got around that the protesters were then heading over to Washington Square Park mm. to attack the, the construction site of the university building. Mm-hmm. So the 27th Regiment camped out in Washington Square Park for four days, protecting the site from any damage. On a happier note, Greg... In 1833 was also the first commencement of New York University. The first graduates. The very first graduates. And the first graduating class had three students. 
In those early years, there were small classes.、Uh, in 1836, for example, the university employed five professors and then some additional part-time instructors. One of those part-time instructors, perhaps one of the most famous instructors ever, come from the school, Samuel Morse, professor of sculpture and painting,、uh, on a part-time basis. But of course, we know him better for the invention of the telegraph in 1838,、um, which he worked on during his time. While he was here at NYU and worked、wow. with other、uh, other instructors here, now he did not receive a salary at NYU. He actually was fees were paid by students who wished to study with him. He even lived in the university building, and they gave him several rooms, of which some of those were rented out to other to private students for private instruction. But the rooms were in such bad shape. Actually, that these these particular rooms that、uh, Morse had rented were leaking water. All the time. In fact, he billed the university for mental damage done、mm. to him and his students. I should try that with my landlord. <laughs> It might work. Another notable professor at this time, John William Draper. He actually became the president of the university in 1850, but he was a chemistry professor in 1837. Of course, chemistry back in this day often led to experimentation in photographic processes, which of course were largely done with chemicals. In 1840, Draper and Samuel Morse constructed a glass studio on the very top of the university building, and from there they played around and did photographic experiments, which is such a cool and amazing thing to think about. Right. Like right there, Draper would end up taking the very first portrait of a female face, and took the very first picture of the moon in 1840, the very first astrophotography. Oh wow! Later in his life, here at NYU, he would form the American Chemical Society, which is today one of the largest scientific societies in the world. The individual colleges would be formed around this time, such as the School of Law in、mm-hmm. 1835. In 1841, the university's School of Medicine was formed. It was probably the biggest success story of any of the individual studies here at the school. They always had more students than the entire school combined. Wow. They were able to control the direction a little bit of how certain decisions were made at the university, which is ironic because they were never actually in this particular building. They originally met in a facility at Broadway and Bond Street, and then later moved up to sit right next door to the Academy of Music on Fourteenth Street. In both cases, those are really nice areas. Broadway and Bond Street in the 1830s is a really nice neighborhood. So. It's interesting to me to think of a school of medicine、mm-hmm. situated in such prominent places. They would later in the 20th century merge with Bellevue Hospital. The school was no stranger to financial woes throughout the 19th century. Unfortunately, the school almost shut down in the 1840s. The law school did shut down for almost two decades,、uh, right here in the middle of the century. Although they were aiming for different kinds of students, they were also competing in a way with Columbia. In 1860, Columbia lowered its tuition so that it was lower than NYU tuition. Now, how many times、mm-hmm. has that happened in history? And NYU ended up waiving its tuition entirely for a brief time in 1871.、Um, how did that work out? Well, not surprisingly, it almost bankrupted the school. They had to put out mortgages on several of their buildings that they owned by this period. It seems philosophically like that's a really nice idea because if they have this education that is for everybody, you know, it's very democratic. However, the plan seemed to backfire because, of course, fathers of say wealthy families who had themselves attended NYU in previous decades 
were not as excited about sending their own sons to a college that wasn't charging tuition because it seemed like kind of a charity school. Yeah, it's, it's true. And other schools like Cooper Union by this time, which were also no tuition schools, were just having better luck at it and had uh, more community support. In 1872, they tried another tack. They, the school bought into a railroad mm. um, and put their fate in the hands of stock holdings for New Jersey's Central Railroad. Of course, that was 72. The following year was the Panic of 1873. So that they lost some of that money, further dragging down student finances to the point that in 1881, they even attempted dropping the entire undergraduate program, which sounds like a shocking thing today, NYU wow. without an undergraduate program. The students, of course, revolted against this uh, and had a very fiery meeting in the chapel here at the University Hall and prevented them from closing it. But why was it, why was the university having all of these financial problems? Well, there were a few different reasons. One of them, I think, was the fact it was paying kind of gravely for being non-denominational. You know, right. So there was no church to prop it up and support it through these rough times. Right, and not just the church propping it up, but families who worshipped a certain way could say, "Well, I want to send my son to that church over there." Right. But this one, because it was trying to foster a non-denominational education, couldn't rely on that, of course. So they had to lean more on political connections. And that, of course, could be very volatile, depending on like which way the wind is blowing. Especially you know? if you have boss tweed romping around your neighborhood. Exactly. So uh, their financial fortunes went up and down very wildly during this period of time. Now, let me talk a l- just a little bit about what it, the students were like themselves here during the 19th century. These were the sons of middle-class merchants. Many got in by scholarship, actually. Uh, so there was there were scholarships at this time. They didn't have dormitories, as you mentioned, so it created a little bit of a different environment than it would in other colleges that not only had dormitories, but this cloistered, closed right. system. Students stayed in local boarding houses, which... I'm sure they got up to a, a lot of trouble. <laughs> Which, though, of course, meant that they were supporting the local economy. They were, even as students are today, like they were far more sort of embedded into the city. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have rules mm. that they were supposed to follow. For instance, students couldn't leave New York City during the entire term. They were supposed to stay right here on the island the whole time. They had to stay away from, quote, billiard rooms, taverns, and other places of corrupting influence. The school, of course, had its usual share of fraternities and secret societies and competing literary societies. In the 1870s came baseball and football teams and perhaps the most popular sport, lacrosse. So it sounds like these students are having a great time. Oh, they're having such a good time that these sort of odd rituals are popping up here As and there. they do in American universities. So in 1885 came the ritual known as the bun. The bun. Yes, at the bun. At the end of the, each year, I don't know how they judge these things, but the class that was judged the most engaged and most spirited would be awarded a bun. A piece a baked of, bun? A baked bun, a piece of bread, but it would be the same piece of bread each year. So uh, keep in mind so it's not, not a fresh bun. Oh, no, 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 no. A very stale <laughs> bun. So then that class would then display the bun at several events the following year. So it was mm. a, a trophy, but just one made of bread. And, and they had to guard the bun, I suppose. Yes. Oh, so anyway, the bread would be so moldy <laughs> and decay so badly that they encased it eventually in a silver casket. And so it was this piece of bread that was in a silver <laughs> casket and then would be 
awarded to the class. Now, by the 1920s, this tradition was not so much about awarding the bun, but stealing right. the bun away from right. the other class. I kind of want to steal that bun right I now. I mean, some shenanigans. Um, now, the bun was often stolen and taken and photographed in faraway locales, even as far away as Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> now, I would like one of our listeners to write in if they have any information. I believe that the bun is still in circulation today, but was recently stolen. And I'm I'm not sure where the bun is in the world today. But technically, the silver casket with the moldy piece of bread is out there somewhere. Do we, do we know if it's really the same bun, the same baked bun from so long ago? At this point, what's the use of replacing it? <laughs> there might be nothing. It might be like decayed to nothing. It's just an empty casket. Mm. Who knows? One final point, which I think is obvious by this point, but I'm talking only about men. Um, only men were admitted into the school during most of this period. The very first female students were brought in in 1873 into the School of Arts. However, they only received instruction, mm-hmm. not degrees. Right. Now, the first real pioneer, I would say, was a Swiss woman named Emily Kempen. She was the first woman to be admitted into male law classes. Again, receive instruction, right. not a real student. But uh, just a few years later, she would actually teach a class for other female law students. So that's the School of Law, and you had already mentioned the School of Arts. Right. So in the coming decades, more and more of the colleges at NYU would admit women. Mm-hmm. So the period from the late 19th century and into the 20th century was one really of dramatic growth under a new chancellor named Henry Mitchell McCracken. Release the McCracken. (laughs) Get McCracken. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was during this period that there was growth around the Washington Square campus with the new Graduate School of Arts and Sciences opening in 1886 and the School of Commerce in 1900, which is today's Stern School of Business. Now, we're not going to be able to go through the opening of every college because NYU is opening colleges and changing names. But I thought that those were important to point out. In 1894, McCracken briefly flirted with the idea of merging the undergraduates with Columbia College. Ooh, so it would have been one massive super college. But that didn't quite work out. He decided on something else, though, which was equally dramatic, in my point of view, moving the undergraduates away from Washington Square up into the Bronx. The idea being that Greenwich Village at this point had attracted lots of artists, lots of bohemians, it, perhaps a distraction to the undergrads. Yeah, it was a little becoming a little ragged, a, a little rough around the edges mm-hmm. by this time. But up in the Bronx, you could still buy a huge tract of land and develop a... a a campus like Columbia would be doing it around the same time. It's interesting. It's parallel, massive moves north. So where was this campus at? It was in the University Heights section of the Bronx. And McCracken hired Stanford White, preeminent architect at this point. Well, he's built all these structures already around Washington Square, including the Arch. Right. And his own father was an NYU graduate. So he would design the campus up in University Heights and do it in, of course, a neoclassical style that looks quite beautiful and typically collegiate in a way that NYU's Washington Square Park campus does not. Mm -hmm. Classes for the University College, which is the undergraduates of arts and sciences and the undergraduates in engineering, 
would start their classes in September of 1894 up at this campus, and they would be here until NYU moved back downtown to the village, moved these undergrads back downtown in 1973. It's very hard to believe that it was split between these two areas, and it must not have been that easy to get to, you know, back well, in the 1890s. That, which was exactly the point, mm-hmm. to get the, the youngest members of the university away from the hustle and bustle of the city. The campus is still today uh, intact. It has been sold, and it is now the Bronx Community College. So now we have the, the undergrads away from Washington Square. So what's happening with the university building here? Because well, it's, it's dripping ceilings in the 1830s. I can't imagine <laughs> right. it's like living large here now. By the 1890s, this old castle is looking kind of passe. It's just not really suitable for a modern university. And it was deemed that the interior as well was not really space efficient. The easiest thing, obviously, would be to demolish it and to build something in its place that was a little more modern. But there were critics at the time that said, you can't demolish this building. It's such a fine example of uh, Gothic revival or neo-Gothic architecture. The university mustn't uh, demolish this structure. Tell me if any of this is foreshadowing any of <laughs> any later concerns oh, be- sure, between the university and the community and and local preservationists. It's an early example of a conflict that would happen many, many, many times during the 20th century. And so, back to Stanford White, who had just designed the campus up in the Bronx, he said, look, I can fix it. He came up with plans to save the old university building by redesigning, reconfiguring its interior to make it more efficient. The university said, thank you, but no thanks. We're going to demolish it anyway, and we're going to build something in its place. So, the beloved university building was demolished in 1894 and replaced by the 10-story commercial building called the, quote, Main Building, which is a rather uninspired name. (laughs) But would later be called the Silver Center. Right, named after Julius Silver in 2002. You know, it's pretty and it's impressive in its own way. It's a very functional, beautiful building. Looks like so many of the other buildings around it with some neoclassical touches. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's just not a neo-Gothic fortress. It doesn't have that pomposity that universities often require in their architecture. It's true. I should add really quickly that the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which was in 1911, that was located right next to these NYU buildings. Right, just a block away. And when that tragic fire happened on March 25th, which killed 146 wor- garment workers, it should be noted, because I, I find it an important part of NYU history, that a lot of the workers were rescued by students who were in the adjacent building who were actually in class. Right. And so there was a lot of roof rescue going on at this time. Right. But that building where the Triangle Factory fire happened is now an NYU building, has been refurbished, and there are classrooms and laboratories in it today. Today, it's called the Brown Building. I will also note that during the war, during World War I and World War II, the Bronx campus did play a part, and NYU played a part, in training of soldiers. NYU, during World War I, worked with the government to train forces on that campus uh, as part of the Student Army Training Corps. And they even sent an ambulance unit over to work with the Red Cross in Bordeaux. During World War II, that same campus would be transformed into a military training camp and would train 18,000 students in engineering, 
for courses in meteorology and war strategy. So basically, the army took over the campus in the Bronx during the Second World War. I mean, that's such an interesting fact. And also, I mean, for NYU's part, I believe they received federal funding. um, So a lot of the structures there were built uh, partially for these dual uses during this period. One thing to add really quickly about the Uptown Campus, because the rest of the show here, we're going to spin to downtown. It has the unusual feature to it, which it's a beautiful part of the Bronx anyway, but it's also something to search out. The Hall of Fame for Great Americans. Right. A a series of busts in this sort of classical colonnade type scene. A portico. Yes, a portico of great Americans, but sort of up to a certain time because they stopped up dating it, right? Well, they, they, they opened this in 1900 under Chancellor McCracken, and it was, right, this idea of celebrating great Americans through their busts, and the first class, if you will, of them was inducted in 1901 with 29 busts, you know, Americans such as George Washington and General Robert E. Lee. You had to be American, and you had to be dead at least 10 years to be inducted into this Hall of Fame. And it sort of fueled a mini Hall of Fame frenzy around the country. Well, we have a lot of Hall of Fames all over over the place that we still live with, baseball and rock and roll, but this is no longer updated. No, but you can go up to the Bronx Community College and visit the Hall of Fame of Great Americans. Now, the modern history of NYU is defined by its increased absorption of the university into the village neighborhood. So this naturally creates conflicts with the neighborhood. So, for instance, the law school by this time, by the late 1940s, is desperate for expansion. It's just getting larger and larger in the post-war period. So they eyed that southwest corner of Washington Square Park. Now, the south side of Washington Square. Which we haven't even discussed. Well, it's never has been as nice as the North Side. By the fate of real estate, and by this time, they had it was low-rent tenements and cafes that were all around here. Seeing NYU eye these buildings, the community saw this as a sign of the university beginning to encroach upon just the normal residential area, which they hadn't really done before until this time. So there was a real concerted effort at this time to fight back. So in, in 1948, the Save the Washington Square committee was formed as a way to prevent NYU from moving into these buildings, pushing back against potential evictions, and trying to preserve the residential identity of the neighborhood at this time. Well, obviously, in this particular case, NYU did win out. In 1951, the Vanderbilt Hall was built on this southwest corner. It remains NYU's law school for over 60 years now. But this is a little taste of what's to come. So if we're talking new developments, mid-century, who else, who could be possibly entering the picture at this time? I think we've got Bobby. Yes, Robert Moses, of course. He has a great many plans for the village and for downtown Manhattan. Um, One of those, of course, namely to gut it with the lower Manhattan Expressway, which would have cut Expressway all the way through the village from west to east. For a section south of Washington Square, he prepared to have a portion slated as slum clearance as part of the city's plans to turn slum areas into areas of new development. Which was his favorite strategy. Mm -hmm. The land was provided to city developers for new high-rises. This slum-cleared land, which was south of Washington Square, from West 4th down to Houston, the community, of course, was enraged by this. They didn't consider this to be slum land. They formed a group called the Washington Square Neighbors. They filed suit in 1955 with the New York Supreme Court to fight back and to push back against Moses and the city developers at this time. 
Now, in other areas of Washington Square, where he also had, some would say, maniacal plans, unusual plans, he was rebuffed. That Lomax project that would have uh, put an expressway right through Manhattan, that was rejected. Right along Broom Street. And if you're surprised by this, you can listen to our podcast number 100 on Robert Moses. But the acreage here at Washington Square South, however, it was redeveloped into the Washington Square Village Apartment Complex. And in 1964, NYU took over those buildings. There was another very controversial building complex by this time called the University Village. Now, this was designed by I.M. Pei, so it had a little cachet to it. It even has that unusual Picasso statue that stands in the middle of it. But the community was not happy with this either. It essentially wiped away blocks and blocks of regular residential housing and other kinds of businesses to build these super blocks. By the way, University Village is today called the Julius Silver Towers, named for the same individual that the Silver Center is named after. Uh Also during the mid-1960s, there were plans for a new library on the southeast corner of the park that would be joined by a long line of tall, square, uniform, some might say frightening-looking buildings with a luxurious galleria that would be all along the entire east side Uh of the Washington Square Park. It would have blocked the sun for most of the east side of the park. This plan was successfully pushed back by the community, but the library was still built. It was with a Philip Johnson design and is today called the Bobst Library, named after Elmer Holmes Bobst, a philanthropist from the pharmaceutical industry. Wow, so there is a lot of construction happening, a lot of big construction. I mean, how can this not be changing sort of the flavor of the neighborhood? It's more acrimonious, actually, between the community and NYU at this time. And to this day, there always seems to be a battle of, you know, some kind of battle going on between the needs of NYU to expand and to modernize its facilities and for the residents to keep a semblance of the residential community that they were used to. Because it's also those qualities of the neighborhood and the qualities of Greenwich Village that attract the students mm-hmm. to NYU in the first place. Well, it seems when they, whenever they build something new, there always seems to be serious issues. It seems like they have a little bit more success when they actually move into older structures and then refit them, such as the Washington Muse, mm-hmm. such as those old row houses on the north side of Washington Square, and many, many others throughout the neighborhood. On top of the sometimes physical uncertainty here, if we're talking the 50s and 60s, this brought student unrest, uh, which came to many universities, of course, at this time. But keep in mind, it's coming to a university that's situated in the village, in the village, (laughs) um, Washington Square Park, which was the home of a whole movement of folk music and protest music. And in the village where you had a lot of progressive and protest groups that were forming in 1965, for instance, you had the NYU Committee to End the War in Vietnam. In 1968, NYU even canceled classes after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. I should just add, just because it's ripped from today's headlines, um, that in 1970, there was a large sit-in for several days at an NYU hall near Washington Square Park of gay and lesbian students. There had been these gay and lesbian dances um, that had been in the basement of this building. NYU canceled them, so many dozens of students and people from around the neighborhood basically had a sit-in within that building uh, in protest of these cancellations. Today, Tom, did you know that in that building is New York City's only location of Chick-fil-A, which, of course, has been in the headlines recently for other gay and lesbian issues. Wow. (laughs) 
this is what I love about history when it folds back into itself when things get cyclical, even though they're sort of unrelated. Wow. Fascinating. As you mentioned, by the early 70s, the Bronx campus was sold off. NYU, like every other institution in New York City at the time, was experiencing financial woes, but they pulled it back together by the 1980s. The campus grew steadily, both in the number of students and the faculty, but even its reputation seemed to elevate by this time. By the 1990s, they made kind of another little mini-migration around the buildings around Union Square. Through this and many other buildings, they actually maintain the seventh largest university housing system in the United States, but doing so through buildings throughout an entire city. Notably, for instance, they took over that old nightclub, Palladium. You may remember that in the... In the I mid-90s. have no <laughs> memories of the Palladium, Greg. They took that old old club and they turned that into a dormitory, uh, basically across the street from where the old Academy of Music and the old School of Medicine used to be. Wow. Over the years, NYU has produced dozens of Nobel laureates, many, many world-famous thinkers, scientists, businessmen, a prestigious list of graduates that includes Woody Allen, Martin Scorsese, Neil Simon, Walter Reed, Juna Salk. J.D. Salinger, Carson McCullers, Angelina Jolie, Rudy Giuliani, and one of the most famous graduates of NYU, Fiorella LaGuardia, who actually has a statue here in the village very nearby all of these NYU buildings. I believe that that statue is on LaGuardia Place, Mm -hmm. just south of the park. So that concludes our history of New York University. Wait a second, Greg. Hold on. Mm -hmm. Stop the presses. Mm -hmm. We didn't mention when it changed its name, because now we're saying New York University and NYU. The university officially changed its name in 1896 when the University of the City of New York became formally New York University. On that note... (laughs) Please check out our blog, BarryBoysPodcast.com, for some old pictures, many of the University Hall, because I think it's a fascinating building indeed. And I would like to plug once again that if you enjoyed this show, please search out our audio walking tour of Washington Square Park. Again, it's available at any place where you can buy digital music, even though, of course, I don't sing. I should have had a little folk Diddy in it. It would have made sense, but that might have been quite jarring. So iTunes, CD Baby. Amazon, Google Play. There's several other places where it gets distributed digitally. So, And you can also find it on our blog, a little store where you can buy it directly. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.